So, we're all trained up, and so we'll start with the first view foil. We've, uh, Stuart covered that. And so, I'm going to go through a few of the products, just to, just to touch on them, just to, you know, kind of celebrate all of the work we've done together. The 747, as you know, we just recently canceled a, a major derivative of the 747, but under uh, Stuart's uh, continuing encouragement, we're thinking about how to increase the gross weight to get 600 to 1,000 more miles, especially when you're going back against the winds from the far, from, to the Far East. But the 747-400 is the latest 747, and it's, and it's doing pretty well. Uh, the seat mile costs are a little higher on this airplane. Uh, but it's a phenomenal airplane. And this is the B-2 uh, bomber, and uh, we're up to 22 of them. And the United States uh, Defense Department is thinking about having us build a few more. I'm taking a new interest in the space shuttle. Uh, as Stuart mentioned, I've, I've grown up in the commercial airplane side of, of the Boeing company for 26 years. And on the day after the board of directors and Phil asked me to uh, move over and integrate McDonnell, Douglas, and Rockwell and, and uh, lead our uh, integrated, balanced, full-service aerospace company, the day after there was a space shuttle uh, launch. And so uh, it was going to launch at 4 a.m., Seattle time. So I had gotten on the Internet on that Friday night to find out what Defense and Space did at Boeing and found, found out that I now own the space shuttle. So <laughs> my interest in the space shuttle went up dramatically. So I got up at 4 o'clock and watched the launch. And as you know, uh, if you go into the NASA homepage, uh, you can even watch it uh, in real-time video. The bandwidth is not so high. Uh, but you can still get a pretty good feeling for a space shuttle launch. Now, that was kind of the good news because, you know, a first flight or a second flight or every flight on time is a terrific thing. But on Monday morning, the day after, they were going to dock with the Mir space station. And if you remember, um, this was the flight where they had a problem with uh, the uh, hatch door going from the tunnel from the space shuttle over to the Mir. So I was sitting in my office, and at 2 o'clock, the phone rang. It was my 9-year-old son. And he said, uh, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and I said, well, it's really nice to, nice to hear from you, Peter, but do about what? And he explained to me that he had you know, been listening to CNN, and he heard about the door wasn't open, and the astronauts were in the tunnel, and it might be a problem, and he thought he'd give me a call make sure I was on the job. <laughs> so uh, this is going very well, and we got some terrific plans to upgrade the shuttle because it's still uh, uh, you know, a very good transportation system space. The 767 that you all know and well, it changed the world dramatically, especially on the North Atlantic. And, and the North Atlantic is dominated now by 767s. And uh, we're stretching the 767. We've increased the gross weight uh, twice. Uh, it's going to be a very, uh, a very efficient machine for many years to come. This is the, the 707 AWACS. Uh, this is a, a really important project to us, especially the partnership between the United States and the U.K., with uh, NATO, and we're upgrading all of the, the AWACS airplanes. But it's doing a real good job for us, did a terrific job uh, during the Gulf War. This is the latest uh, attack uh, helicopter. This is the Comanche, and the, the United States uh, Defense Department uh, has decided that uh, to put this into uh, initial production. A, a terrific, very stealthy, probably the most stealthy um, attack helicopter today. The B-52, we we think about how long this has been, and uh, Rolls-Royce and Boeing 
uh, have just made a proposal to the United States Defense Department to re-engine the uh, B-52 with fabulous Rolls-Royce engines. And they're thinking about that because it's just a terrific workhorse for, for the world, and it just keeps going. The F-22 Raptor, I think you've been following this, uh, a terrific uh, fighter to replace the, uh, the fighters that were uh, generated around 20 years ago. And the first flight is, is imminent. We're probably being about uh, two weeks. And a terrific-looking airplane, and we're, we're um, linked together with uh, Lockheed Martin on the F-22. The 777, as Stuart pointed out, um, I have a fondness for this airplane, as well as many people in this room. I, one fun thing about this trip is, is seeing all the people that we work together really closely with, uh, from Rolls and Smiths and, and uh, Cathay Pacific. And I don't know whether you all know this, but Stuart John personally set the cross-section for the 777, which is which is phenomenal because it's the only airplane that can go six abreast, seven abreast, and tourist, uh, or uh, nine abreast and ten abreast and tourist, uh, seven and eight abreast in business class, and six abreast in first class. And it's because of the extra five inches where it's bigger in fuselage diameter, bigger than the L-1011s and the DC-10s. And Stuart had had a lot of experience with L-1011s and encouraged us to make a, an airplane that was really competitive. And then British Air, we talked to British Airways and, and uh, A&A and JAL and, and American Airlines and United, and everybody uh, thought that was terrific. It's turned out to be a, a, just a terrific uh, feature of the 777, besides the fact that it flies faster, flies further, has a lower seat mile cost than the competition. So it's a terrific, it's turned out to be a terrific airplane, with about 80% market share, I might add. Um, and we just saw a beautiful uh, color scheme in Emirates, and I'm not supposed to say anything about the new color scheme for British Airways, which I will not, <laughs> because Jock is going to announce that, I think, at the Paris Air Show. But the airplane's doing really well in service. We've got like 52 of them now, and the dispatch reliability is, is uh, uh, almost to 99%. The Chinook, uh, very uh, important, again, for our relationship with the U.K. and around the world. A uh, number of countries around the world are using it as their main heavy lift uh, helicopter. The space station, a phenomenal thing. Uh, Fifteen countries around the world. It's really more about working together in science uh, and enabling technologies than, than the station itself. Uh, we'll probably put the first piece of the space station in orbit um, later in 1998. It'll be around 260 miles above the Earth, traveling at approximately 17,752.3 miles an hour. <laughs> um, terrific adventure. The 737, uh, we'll have the latest generation of the 737 at, at Paris, the 737-700. And a number of us here, a um, number of the airlines here, have been with the 737 I was the chief project engineer on the 737-300 uh, a number of years ago. And now we have the uh, 600, the 700, and 800. And we just announced that we'll probably stretch the 800 and make a 900. So, you, so the airlines can, can size their airplanes uh, to their market demand. But uh, it's going to be a terrific uh, extension of the 737, the most popular single-aisle airplane ever, ever made. Another lower, a little bit higher seat mile cost. Uh, this is the V-22 Osprey, and uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense has just decided to, uh, that they like the airplane really well, and, and it's just been uh, uh, started in, in uh, production. 
a terrific looking airplane. It changes the whole nature of, of the Army and the interaction with the ground forces. The evolved expendable launch vehicles, and this uh, world is changing so fast about getting the assets into space that you're gonna, I think we're all going to see a tremendous uh, competition for who's going to be the launch provider around the world and taking the, whatever evolves out of the Titan and the Delta rockets and new engines for them to dramatically lower the cost and the access to space is going to be a competitive advantage for whoever is the aerospace leader. The airborne laser, another phenomenal uh, piece of technology uh, for uh, the anti-ballistic uh, missile defense system where you can get rid of the missile in the burn stage. And again, for you know, we're trying to move to a more peaceful world, but it'd be really nice to be able to take out the missiles before they get going. And again, uh, we're in a research and development phase with the, with the U.S. Department of Defense and a number of other defense agencies around the world. The Sea Launch, this is working together internationally. This is Kavarner, uh, one of the best and biggest aer uh, shipbuilding companies in the world, combined with uh, the two major uh, rocket uh, industry pieces in Russia with the Boeing company to have a movable space launch system that we can get down by the equator and, and get the, uh, the advantage of the rotation of the Earth to, to put up space vehicles a lot more efficiently. And we just, uh, the platform is an oil is a large oil uh, rig that cruises around at around 13 knots. It's quite a, quite a sight to see. It's out doing its sea trials right now. The B-1 uh, we know uh, quite a bit about, and we're upgrading all of the avionics for it. And the latest version of the AWACS, the 767, which we're in partnership and selling the first ones to uh, the Japan Defense Agency. But a, a terrific improvement over the over the airborne warning, warning and control system that we did with the 707. And the Joint Strike Fighter, I, I noticed uh, a number of Joint Strike Fighter uh, participants here today, and uh, this will be probably the latest uh, fighter that we'll be making, uh, at least for the next, I'd say, 15 to 20 years, a terrific uh, kind of market-driven fighter in that it satisfies a number of the different departments uh, in the military. And a really good-looking, a really good-looking really good machine. The 757, we're stretching the 757. Uh, it has really long legs now, so, so a lot of the airlines around the world like it for its uh, capability. It's high altitude, hot, and we're stretching it. And again, in the seat mile costs, uh, even get lower. So a nice complement to the high end of the single aisle airplanes. And the wedge tail is a 737 uh, AWACS version when you don't need quite as much uh, capability as a 707 or the 767. And the commercial version of the tilt rotor. You'll, these will be coming to an airport close to you, uh, or a building close to you. Again, the seat mile costs are a little bit high, but the convenience uh, and the market demand around the world with the combination of the speed that it has of a light airplane with its ability to take off and land vertically uh, is very appealing, and I think we'll have a few announcements at the Paris Air Show about how well this airplane is doing. Whoa, I'm exhausted. <laughs> okay, so now this is what we'd normally talk about. We talk about all those products and, and how much fun we've had making them and doing it together around the world. And I'd like to, I'd like to kind of change the subject. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the future because the world has dramatically changed, as we all know. And the pace of that change is going to continue to accelerate. And I just want to 
share with you just my humble perspective about uh, how, how that change is going to affect us in aerospace. This is a chart that um, we made up listening to all the futurists, you know, like the Tofflers and the Pattersons and the Robertsons, all the people that think big time about how the world is, is developing. And the way, the way the futurists think of the world, they kind of look at, at those four big uh, forcing factors or winds of change, things that are just changing around the world. Uh, technology, a good example of that, uh, you know, is a microprocessor, for example. The demographics, um, in four years, there'll be more people in India than in China. And you're watching, we're all watching the shift of economic power uh, to the Far East. Uh, the environment is just a lot different than, than uh, the way we've grown up in the aerospace industry, the concern for the ozone, the concern for natural resources. What happens when large portions of the United States become arid and, and large numbers of people start to move to where just to survive or to, to uh, participate in the economic development? And then the social values. What do we find acceptable to now? For example, with CNN, it's not acceptable to see the people of the world uh, dragged through the streets or shot up in wars. And you combine the social values and what we find acceptable with the technologies available now that what we consider to be defense and war is dramatically changing. Plus, it's going to change people getting together and information getting together around the world. So I want to talk just a little bit about that. Now, when you look at all of those, the futurists, and there's no, of course, there's no right answer. There's no answer in the back of the book about how this is going to come out. So that's why they're called futurists. And it's okay to talk about it because we need to think about it and debate it and, and wonder because what we decide to work together on is what will happen. So if we can have these kind of discussions, I think it's going to help all of us. And aerospace is going to be a big part of the leadership role. But you look at today's society, kind of down the left-hand side, and you look over on the right-hand side to what the futurists call the third wave. And the third wave is an interesting thing. And there, th over many, many years, the futurists kind of see three waves of fundamental things that have changed. One is, up the top, you can see the first wave was what we think of as the agrarian age, where everybody was uh, essentially you know, farming. The second stage was the industrial age, uh, mainly brought about by the internal combustion engine and what happened with cities, and then what happened with suburbs. You think of all the things that happened as a result of the industrial age, where only a small portion of all the world's people now are farming. They're taking care of everybody now. And then we're on the very front end. Now, if you like computers today, we haven't seen anything yet, because we are on the very front end of what the futurists call the information age. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now, this is the way the futurists see the world, because this is going to get really personal. It's going to affect all of us as we go forward here. In today's society, we've kind of concentrated on transportation, infrastructure, economic conflict around the politics, nation states trying to survive as nation states, uh, crime, corruption. And in business, things were sort of rigid, had centralized decision, people thinking they could take care of everybody else by their decisions. Uh, physical assets were really important, so that's why we have all the physical assets we have, a lot more than we really need. Uh, and maximizing scale, because somehow if you can make enough of them and get them into production, then there's great value for a lot of them. Now, in this new world, the futurists see it a lot differently. As, as far as today's society, they see a web of infrastructure where everybody knows everything. 
and communication is uh, just so much broader and comprehensive and thorough than it is today. They see, instead of economic conflicts and politics, they, they see big discussions about ethnics and gender and lifestyle are going to be discussed a lot in the politics as, as compared to the past. On nation states, they see localism and transnationalism where, where people get together for all kinds of reasons. You can kind of see that with the EU. Uh, maybe that's an example of that. But it'll start to be driven by the market and economies, and whatever has to work has to work uh, economically. With the, especially with technology and demographics, crime and corruption are, is going to get a lot more sophisticated. I think we all know what's happening in Russia right now. And you add in the technology piece, and we're going to have some real social questions about how to manage the world and manage ourselves. And then when you think of this as from a business point of view, that where things were more rigid, things are going to be a lot more adaptive. We're all going to have to be a lot more flexible uh, the decisions will be a lot more distributed. There'll be a lot of decisions that that will be made that we aren't part of. They'll just be made. And so, the the importance of having a shared view and in uh, everybody kind of knowing what the plan is is going to be even more important because everybody's going to be making a lot more decisions because the information is going to be available. And knowledge assets are going to be uh, just absolutely prized. For example, Microsoft has sold all of their all of their manufacturing capability. They have nothing but knowledge workers right now because it's moving so fast on the making of things that they're concentrating on the highest end, on the knowledge itself. And customized scale. We'll have to do what, what the market wants, but we'll have to do it in a very customized way. Now, this is a lot different world than, than what we've grown up in, you know, with long production runs and thinking things out and things being somewhat stable. This is a very different world that the futures, futurists are predicting. And we'll get a chance to talk about this during the Q&A. Now, just two or three pieces of kind of data uh, about this world that the futurists look at. Communism. Remember 1989. Think this is only 1989 that Gorbachev was on the front of Time magazine. And Gorbachev reached out to the world because it wasn't working. And he reached out to try to create or build a new world. And within two years, the CIS replaced Russia. And two times since then, communism has been voted down. And this is very significant and very subtle because in a way, a lot of, it's kind of a symbolic around the world. Everybody's trying to move towards capitalism. Now, another piece of data. When you think of a world where uh, you can fly, um, say, Chicago to Hong Kong or uh, Europe to Hong Kong and, and fly great circle routes, the world dramatically changes. When people stop going to hubs, they start going point to point because people are working together around the world. And I just want to show, look what our world's going to feel like. This is a plot of available seat miles. So all of the, our friends here that are with the airlines, they know this data intimately and they think about it all the time. And the curve is the available seat miles that are available in all the airplanes around the world versus time. And you can see that the dark blue goes up to 95, 96, where we are today. And there are approximately those uh, billions, 2,000 billions worth of seat miles turn into 11,500 airplanes are flying today. And uh, with the approval of the McDonnell Douglas 
merger, 93% of all those seats will be Boeing airplanes. Isn't that incredible? And we were worried about 65% of them being Boeing airplanes before. But 11,500 airplanes are, are flying today. And if you look at the kind of the gray, we'll, have to, we'll be replacing some of the older airplanes. But with proper maintenance, you know, the commercial airplanes will last, uh, you know, 25 to 30 years. But if we take out 30% for replacement, and then we look very conservatively at the growth rates and the GNP growth around the world, and we get that top of that light blue line, which is approximately 5.4328% compounded each year, which is kind of what it's been in the past. And a lot of people think that that could be conservative by at least two. It could be twice as high. Now, if that happens, that means by the year 2016 that those 11,500 airplanes will go up to 23,500 airplanes flying around. Now, I wonder what that means to us. I mean, it means a lot of things to us. Imagine managing twice the airplane departures that we have today. And what does it mean to maintenance? And what's it mean to making new airplanes? And what does it mean to operating airplanes? And what does it mean to pilots? And what does it mean to airlines? And I wonder where the value chain on air, operating and maintaining airplanes will be. I wonder where that boundary will be. And so one of the things that is dramatically changing our life is the Global Positioning Satellite System, which was originally done for uh, defense and the space industry. And now we're going to be down to the place where we'll be within two to four meters of accuracy from satellites that are operating at nearly 10,000 miles above the Earth, where we know the speed, the acceleration, and its location on the Earth within two or three meters. And so somewhere, all of this, this uh, tactical, ground-based operation that we've been doing is all going to move up to be satellite-based. And then you can imagine concepts like free flight coming in. But you think of what that just means to us in this industry, managing twice the number of commercial airplanes flying around. And think of what it means about the number of people that are going to actually get together and work together and, and uh, play together around the world. It's going to be a dramatic change to all of us. They're going to be going point to point and around these big hubs. Has anybody gone to Narita to go to Narita? No. Hong Kong, yes. Uh, Narita, you usually try to go to Osaka or somewhere else. But as soon as the airplanes like the 777 have the range and you have the ability to navigate and guide and control around the world, then the airplanes are going to flood all of the point to point, just like the 767 did on the North Atlantic, which you can see another reason why we did not make a bigger 747. Now, another piece of data. It's going to change our life, and we all know this. Every time I think of this, I think of the Secret Service. I didn't know about the Secret Service around the world until this new job, and these are all the people that talk into their cufflinks. <laughs> and I thought they were talking to me, and I wondered why they couldn't maintain eye contact, and they were talking into their cufflinks. And you look at computing power, and this is Moore's Law, and as, as uh, engineers and scientists, we understand this phenomenon. There's not a physical phenomena here. Still the same forces of, of, uh, of gravity and electromagnetic uh, physics, but the doubling every two years of the microprocessor capability. 
And this is a plot going out to around 2015, and we're right around that Pentium uh, 100, Pentium Pro. And so we're right around 10,000 equivalent transactions or tra uh, transistors on a chip. And if you take it up to the limits of physical science, the speed of light, there's no reason that we won't be up in the one million in the next few years. Now, the implications of this are far-reaching, to say the least. And that's why we're seeing um, a lot of the things we're seeing today. I was at this uh, summit with Bill Gates in Seattle with a number of CEOs from around the world, and one of the things that we looked at was a, uh, a laptop computer that was the size of our palm. And it was only that size for the keyboard. With all of the capability, the capability of a, the equivalent of a Cray computer. And talk about not, the answer not being in the back of the book. We have no idea what it means when, as far as moving data and information when you have computing capability like this. And what Bill Gates and the other computer people are working on around the world is to make the computer really user-friendly, like we have in all of our cockpit design over the years, where it's all going to be voice uh, recognition and all of the keyboards are going to go away because the keyboards are really came from the teletype. So that, and they're all placed so that you can't type fast, so you can stop the teletype from getting stuck. Remember that? And so we're all sitting around with our arms and legs starting to hurt and wonder why. It's because it's supposed to be that way, because we're not supposed to be typing fast. And so we're going to go right past that, and we're going to be talking. It's going to be an extension of us to anybody anywhere around the world. Now, and this is where the future is. They're looking at this, and this is the start. We've only been doing this for a few years. We don't even have any idea what this, what this is going to mean to us, but it's going to dramatically change all of our lives. This is a plot of the Internet users. And... Um, I saw in The Economist in the hotel room, uh, it had a plot of the PC users around the world. It was up to, I think it was 363 million PC users. And see, when the computational capacity gets so great, then all of the, that's why we're moving away from the big mainframes and distributed computing. And distributed computing is going to be the place where we all have a computer, like probably with us. And so all of the tasks associated with information and communication are all going to start to collapse. And these are just the Internet users around the world, and you can see the exponential growth, and we're up to 150 million. And we just started. <clears throat> this is just at the very start. Now, we were talking about this uh, over the last couple of days, and there are not enough backhoes around the world to dig up the earth to put in fiber optic cables. So what's going to happen with the technology is that the Internet and the infrastructure that we thought of as airplanes traveling around the world is going to move up to be in space-based. And we have the capability, and technically we can do this now. And I think you might have seen this about three weeks ago. Boeing and uh, Microsoft and Craig McCaw of McCaw Cellular and AT&T just announced a joint venture where we're going to put up 300 low-Earth orbit satellites that travel around 700 miles, and we will literally move the Internet, which is ground-based now, mostly over a twisted pair, some coax cable, hooking the computers around the world, to an Internet capability where anybody on the ground, anywhere around the world, has access with a dish that will be about 12 inches. We'll be sending the data up at 30 gigahertz, down at 20 gigahertz. 
with 500 megahertz of bandwidth around both of them. That means that we'll be watching from here to Adelaide in Australia real-time video back and forth simultaneously with the Internet Protocol. And this is uh, four years away. Now, I wonder what that means to us. 70% of all the people in the world today do not have access to a telephone. I wonder what it means when everybody has access to data. I wonder what it means socially. I wonder what it means economically. I wonder what it means to be a have-not when you don't know you're a have-not. I wonder what it means if you're a have-not when you figure out you are a have-not. I wonder what this means to us. Now, this is supposed to be exciting. You look like a deer caught in headlights here. <laughs> um, so this is one piece where, where Boeing's moving. Now, what that's going to feel like to us, I think, just the little bit I've seen, uh, you know, working with, uh, with the big telecommunications companies and, and, the, and the software companies, is that, that we, we're on the verge of what Jock Lowe and a lot of us have spent our lifetime trying to make people the center of the universe with pilot training, for example, and the way we design airplanes and the interface with airplanes and the way people, because this is for people. So I think we're going to see a tremendous change in the way we deal with computers where we're the center of the, uh, of the task, and it'll be uh, designed around us operating and participating in the world. But it'll all kind of merge together where we'll be taken care of. So that brings me to my last slide. And I designed this one for this meeting. And this is kind of our view of the world. It's not like it's right or wrong. The answer is not in the back of the book. But when you look at those forces of change, the technology, the social, the population, and the environment, I think this is what's going to happen. And over on the left-hand side, you can see the government and the commercial starting to come together. I think it will all be led by commercial practices which is why you can see us moving the way we're going, because it's moving too fast. And probably the biggest social institutions and the technology development are going to be led now by commercial practices for the reasons we just talked about, for, because of this information age. The nature of defense is going to change because we're going to know everything. Wars are going to stop before they get started. So if you're going to choose to violate mankind... You might choose to do that, but you probably not participate. And this is not very far away, because once you know everything, then you know everything. And that's what those geostationary satellites are doing at 23,000 miles up there. Um, the second circle, information and communications, aircraft and space. Right across the bottom is the new Aerospace Magazine, Aerospace International by the Royal Aeronautics Society. And uh, aerospace, as we have known and loved it, is we're going to continue to make vehicles. We're going to make uh, vehicles that operate where there's more air molecules, and we're going to make vehicles that operate in space. But the value added, the knowledge base, the new world is going to be on the information and communication that go amongst the vehicles and the length of time people together which is like taking the AWACS of operating information all around the helicopters and the fighters 
and the bombers, taking that up to be space-based so that information is flowing and everybody knows everything. Now, the reason this is going to get accelerated, I think, is that when, when technology is available and it's led by commercial practices, we're going to move towards market-based economies. And the governments are just are not going to be able to keep up. And the big companies are going to take on this tremendous responsibility socially, like we talked about, uh, because we'll be managing communities and we'll be managing relationships all around the world. We'll see every possible form of collaboration and cooperation around the world because economic growth will be the, the engine that drives everything. We'll all be a lot more interdependent. We're going to have to learn how to deal with each other in a lot, maybe a more English civil way around the world. And uh, people and information integrated together around the world is what it's going to feel like to us. And the people that are the absolute best at working together, of, of seeking to understand before they seek to be understood, of trying to create value in a win-win situation and operate around the world uh, as world companies and global companies are the ones that we're going to look to for, for leadership in the future. And this is going to accelerate at a pace like we've never seen. So, um, now this is what it's going to look like. And this is another chart that I designed. In my previous <laughs> life, I was an airplane designer. Uh, now it's, I'm a viewfold designer. Uh, a vision department. And you can just see what we talked about. Over on the left-hand side, it's really a fun chart. You can see the launchers and the space shuttle. The space launch business is going to quadruple for the low Earth orbits and the geostationaries. You can see the space station, all the microgravity research. I think that's where uh, the cure for some of the, the significant diseases we have because we can, we can watch how things really happen without the effects of the number one magic thing of all, and that's gravity, acting on them. Uh, the teledesic, the low Earth orbit satellites, which is like taking the AWACS up to um, 700 miles. And the GPS, the, geostation, the geostationary satellites are around 23,000 miles up. The GPSs are at 10,000 miles. Teledesics are around 1,000 miles. Right now, we're considering an unmanned vehicle version of the JSF. And General Fogelman, the head of the United States Air Force, some people think that the JSF, even if the first versions have a pilot, that the subsequent ones will not. And it all goes back to those same forces of change. Can you imagine a UAV with that kind of capability? With jocks sitting in some room somewhere with cameras everywhere flying this baby. You thought he's a good pilot now when you're flying on the Concorde. Uh, but see, it's all because it's possible. And we're the ones who are going to have to figure out what really does have value and the way we want to have it. The helos, the bombers, the fighters, the commercial airplanes as we know them. But see, they're just vehicles. They're just vehicles. What we're going to be doing, working on is a system of systems and integrating the information together. And then when, it, when you think of uh, the business, I, I'll, I will imagine that within five or six years that one-third of the total dollar revenues will come from information and communication, one-third from airplanes, and one-third from space vehicles. And that will gradually move to more and more information. So that's my last slide. Now, we've got to have fun. And if you feel overwhelmed, then just get in line. Or as you would say, queue up. Uh, because... Sometimes, I was telling Nikki today, we were right along, and she said, don't you, do you ever just get overwhelmed by this? And uh, sometimes 
Yes. And, but if you just get your friends together, if you get all the smart people around the world and you just talk about what's important, um, it'll all work out. We just have to keep working together. Now, we talked about those futurists. Remember, they talked about these three fundamental ages, the agrarian age, the industrial age, and the information age. And I, I was talking about this with uh, some uh, very senior scientists um, in one of the most senior uh, think tanks around the world. And we talked about the internal combustion engine and how that changed the industrial revolution. And that, that's the reason we have cities and why we have suburbs and why we have traffic jams. I mean, not all of this stuff has worked out real well. Um, and then you think about the microprocessor, and we talked about that. We've only been at it, you know, 30 years. And, it's, and we just started. Think how long the agrarian went and the industrial. And where, see, where they say all the conflicts come from is managing the boundaries between these big, huge changes. And you can, you can see that around the world. There are big fights uh, as you move from these big ages. And I was talking to these, this think tank and this uh, scientist who I, I just absolutely uh, had only read about, studied in, in the graduate school and stuff, and he raised his hand and he said, Alan, you know, the next great invention that might change the world could be the thermos bottle. And, and I'd, I'd heard so much about him that whatever he would say, I need to listen to. So I said, and he just it was straight face, and he, I said, could you tell me you know, more about it, sir? And he said, well, you think about these inventions. I mean, think of what the internal combustion engine, you think about the microprocessor. I mean, things are hard to understand, magical things. And you think about the thermos bottle. You know, you put hot things into it, and it stays hot. And you put cold things into it, and it stays cold. How does it know? <laughs> Okay, I'm glad that went over. Uh, <laughs> so the idea is, it's okay. There are a lot of magical things out there, but we just need to keep working these together. Now, um, my last slide. This is the Boeing homepage. And I want to talk about the Royal Aeronautical Society. Because as a fellow, and with the opportunity to rub that wonderful thing that Stuart had around his neck, it's always a highlight for me to come back. But I want to talk about the Royal Aeronautical Society for a second. This is the Boeing homepage, the external page. We also, like many of you, have an intranet inside Boeing. Because remember, whoever can create the web of information flowing and everybody knowing everything is the one that's going to create the best value the fastest. And on Sunday, before I left uh, Seattle, uh, I went over to aeros related aerospace sites. And I pushed on it, and up came Ron Kennett's picture. <laughs> and I went to... Uh, uh, it had the Royal Aeronautics Society, and, and I clicked on the Royal Aeronautics Society. And, and it's really neat because I'm sure you've all seen it, but it has the Royal Aeronautical Society. It says arrivals. It's kind of you know, neat. You just arrive. See, see it's, that's what the web's about. That's why it's called a web. It's a web. Or, and we're, it's just like, like the airplane infrastructure. See, we're all in a web. And so uh, this is a note from Ron, and, and, um, and it has all the news and contents and history and the young members and the library and the careers. And it was just put on in 1996, I think, Ron, wasn't it? And it's a fabulous home page. But the reason I wanted to, then I also went to, uh, about the Royal Aeronautics Society. And throughout, this is what it says about the Royal Aeronautics Society. Throughout the world's aerospace community, the name of the Royal Aeronautical Society is both well-known and well-respected. 
There are many practitioners from all disciplines within the industry who use designated post-nominals such as, and you know them all, the FRA and the Royal Aeronautical Society and what is the significance of being a member. And this, this sentence says not so much about the past, which is fabulous, but it talks about the future. The Royal Aeronautical Society is, quote, the one multidisciplinary professional institution dedicated to the global aerospace community. What do you think of that? And you think about what we just talked about. You think of London. You think of working together around the world. And I think that the Royal Aeronautics Society, serving the aerospace professional, figuring this world out for all the people because they have the knowledge to do it, is going to be the centerpiece uh, of the future. And I think we should feel really good about getting a chance to participate. And I think it's a great forum to discuss it. So with that, thank you very much.